Hello people, good to have you here today as we continue our journey together through the Bible. This time continuing to look at lessons from the Law of Moses as revealed in Exodus 21, the follow-on chapter after the Ten Commandments. We're really taking a look back into the ancient past and the beginnings of society and the principles that God lays down. I do hope you find it interesting and helpful today. If you're here for the first time, why not consider subscribing to this podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts from. And that way, you need never miss another single episode. That way, you can make a decision to make the benefits of having the Word of God as part of the rhythm of your daily life. You join a community of people around the world in, well, last week it was 178 countries we've been listened to now. Community of people all around the world who've made that decision. But if you are here for the first time, please make sure you stick around at the end and I'll tell you lots of ways that you can connect to this ministry and access the other free Bible teaching resources I make available in lots of different places. Anyway, that's it by way of introduction. I'll see you at the end and it's bye for now. Okay, my good people, today we continue a new chapter. We're going to look hopefully at all of Exodus chapter 21, and I've called it Lessons from the Law of Moses. We all know in life it sometimes really helps to know and understand the law, the law particularly of the society in which we live. That can be particularly important if you have a simple thing, even just like a car crash. It's important to know what to say and perhaps what not to say. But it's also worth noting that we, today, I'm sure most of you listening to this, will live in a country that is to some extent, if not wholly, based upon the Judeo-Christian tradition as first revealed in the book of Exodus here. You see, the whole concept of legal and moral legislation was first revealed to the Jewish people here and was later adopted by Christians and it teaches us things about the law not only in terms of principle, but how to apply it. So the question is asked, what can we possibly learn looking at this thousands and thousands of year old text? What is it about the law we could possibly be of value today? What is revealed here, which at the very foundation of society, so to speak, what can we learn and what can it teach us about how we should think ethically and moral in our approach to the world? and even our dealings with the legal system. Well, the answers are found, I believe, some really interesting answers are found here in Exodus chapter 1. Now, as I've said before, you need to understand, keep this in context, in the previous chapter, we've had the Ten Commandments given, that famous passage of Scripture. But now in verse 21, we saw yesterday that the first verse opens up by telling us the next stage of what's going to be revealed, where it says, Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. Now this is significant. In chapter 20, we saw the Ten Commandments, and chapter 21 tells us that what you're about to read are some judgments, some practical decisions made interpreting those laws, those Ten Commandments, how they were applied in this early society. But before doing that, we need to understand what is the difference between a commandment, which we saw laid down 
couple of days ago and a judgment which is being discussed here. And the answer is something like this. The commandment is the broad law, the principle that's laid down. The judgment are the situations that come up where the application of those laws, those principles need to be applied. To say they probably the same thing in another way and how it works in our day is we have the law that stands in statute as common laws and then we have the additional laws where in the UK we have Parliament or the House of Lords then pass additional laws and then even on top of that there's another layer of what is called case law. So the law as given was the general principle. The commandments as given were the general principle and now we're going to come up with and see some very specific situations where you can see how that plays out. How that general law applied in that situation. And today that still happens and in a sense what lawyers do is they go back and they look at and they study prior cases, previous laws, that's called case law, and then they will sometimes come up with a judgment agreed between lawyers or sometimes if it's more protracted than that it'll involve a jury or perhaps a judge to decide how the general law should be applied in that principle. Allowing for what is to, in the UK is sometimes referred to as judicial precedent. For example, the Ten Commandments, a really easy one is the Ten Commandments simply said do not kill. So how does that apply then? Should distinctions be made? Well, it did then and it does now. There are cases we all know where people deliberately and premeditatively decide to take someone's life. But the law recognises that that is different from accidentally taking someone's life. It's recognised here in Exodus and it's recognised in our judicial systems around the world today. The way we look at it today is one is called murder, another might be called manslaughter, and one might be called even accidental death or causing death by gross negligence. But these distinctions, all of them, are rooted in the interpretation first seen in the Mosaic Law, and it actually starts here, if you like, the first case law in Exodus 21. Now, some of them may seem very odd to our ear today, so we need to try and reinterpret them at how they apply to the society in which we live today, but they still provide the basic principles. So verse 1 opened this chapter by saying these are judgments and by actually saying it, it's just telling us that these are examples, some of this case law, so to speak, to help you think about how this might work out in the society in which you've been placed. Now that's what they were given for here, for this exodus, this children of Israel generation, and we're still to some extent, well to a great extent, thinking that way today. Now the plan is to, well, maybe not the whole chapter, but most of it, and I think I'll, what I'll do is I'll look at first five different cases that apply in five different situations. And the first case deals with what is referred to as male servants. And that is in these opening verses two to six, where it says, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master has given him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and the children shall belong to the master and only the man shall go free. But if that servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children and I don't want to go free, then the master must take him before the judges and take him to the door, to the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. 
this will be a sign that he will be a servant for life in the household. Now I know that can all sound a little bit strange, but this is the case, the example, where it takes a Hebrew servant and you need to understand that what is being described here is not slavery in the modern sense of the word. Then probably a more accurate way to describe it is someone who is in indentured service. An indentured servant is someone who has been entered into or placed under a contract, an indenture, to that person's master. But what is significant about this passage is you can immediately pick up that there is no time limit to this. There is always a time limit. He is only to be indentured for a maximum of six years. After that, he is to go free. And this will tie in with something called the year of Jubilee, which we'll get to later on in a few months. But the question is, why would someone do what we're seeing here? Why would someone be placed into or even willingly place themselves into this form of indented servitude? And the answer is to usually to pay off a debt. They would say, I owe a person this debt. So what they do is I'll sign a contract with you to enter into agreement that I will be your servant. But that contract would always have a limit. And after six years, the person would be free. So this indicates that people could become indentured servants themselves or because it was a sentence handed down to them for debt and by doing that they would sign a contract but that means they would be obligated to that master but within certain limits. So here we have a situation of a male indentured servant and the owner has provided a wife for him but when it comes to the time for him to leave it says the wife should have to stay because the wife was a servant and the servant belonged to the master. And the master shouldn't necessarily have to lose both the wife and all the children that have come along since. However, it allows for a situation where if the servant wants to keep that wife and his family, in other words, stay married, then they could go and make a social contract before the judges, the servant and the master. And in doing that, the servant would have his ear pierced and then he would stay as a servant and stay married to his wife. So the ear piercing was a symbol that this agreement had been reached. But then the master would become responsible for providing for him, the servant, and his whole family. And he would be responsible from the servant's point of view of continuing to serve that master. Now we don't really have anything like that today. But I did read someone who said this is not that different in employment terms to a professional athlete who signs a contract for a team. They're under a contract in that sense and they're owned by that team and they cannot play for another team until the contract runs out. They then become a free agent or they can make a deal with the existing owner and the existing team. So although that example is quite useful in terms of understanding the employment situation, of course, it doesn't deal with the nuances of the family situation, but I think it's a little bit helpful nonetheless. So the key thing is, what in heaven's name can we learn from this today? Well, I think if you get back and take a helicopter view and think about the principles being taught here, well, if nothing else, it teaches us that all people have basic rights even when they're being punished or when they've had to sell themselves off to pay a debt, they still have rights. There are limits to what can be extracted from them. And if they don't want to stay in that indented relationship 
for longer than the agreed term, then that must remain their choice. They can choose to stay or they can choose to go, but neither situation can be forced upon them. So when I look at this case, the thing I walk away from the fact is that even indented servants has rights and that is built into the law, which means everyone has basic human rights. Now, the second case is going to get even more convoluted and more interesting. And it has to do with a man giving his daughter to be married. And it begins in verse 7 and goes to 11. So let's hear what it says. And just, you know, hang on to your hats a little bit. Try not to get too triggered by what we're hearing here because it is more convoluted and more nuanced than it would first appear to the modern ear. It says this, If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. But if she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. But if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Now that sounds a little bit dodgy to us in this day and age, I think, because it really appears it looks like this daughter is being sold. Except the next verse indicates that this is all to do with marriage. If you notice, the verse 8 says, He betrothed her to himself. So this is a case of what we would today describe as an arranged marriage, which was the norm across all societies at that time that this was written. But God is adding some extra factors into if this is being done, how this is being done in this day and age. In this situation, we see a father and a suitor make a deal that this is going to happen in the future, as was the norm at that time. So this is what we would today call an arranged marriage. And you need to remember that that still goes on in some parts of the world to this day. But in this situation, this means if the husband, the prospective husband, decides he doesn't like the girl that he's been promised to, so this is at the point at which he would take her fully as his wife, then he doesn't have the right to sell her on to someone else. He can either accept her or she has to be redeemed set free so she can go back home he can't simply pass her on to any other random person or make any financial arrangements to pass her on now i know this is a little bit confusing and challenging from our point of view because it then talks about him betrothing her to his son instead but that means that if the master's son subsequently came alongside and said he wanted her he wanted to take her and treat her as his wife not as a concubine, please note, she then must be allowed and can only be allowed to become a fully-fledged wife and she must no longer be treated as a servant in any way and by doing that she must gain all the rights of a wife. Even if she had been a servant before, she gains the rights and becomes a free woman. So I think the point of all this is, very simply, the principle is you can't treat your wife or your daughter as a servant or a slave. You see, this is setting a limit 
on what can go on here. Remember, this is at a time when multiple wives were commonplace. Arranged marriages were commonplace among the tribes and nations of that time. But this sets some very strict rules and limitations in relation particularly to a daughter becoming a wife and saying that the husband, the new husband, any potential husband, can't treat her any way he wants. If she becomes his wife, she must gain the full rights as a wife, and he has to treat her as a wife and as a fully-fledged person and human being. So the takeaway in this case is that even in the arranged marriages that were allowed at that time, that women had rights and that they must always be treated with dignity and respect, which, believe you me, was the opposite of the normal standard of that day. Anyway, moving on, the next case is verses 12 to 14, and it deals, well, with something a little more juicy, shall we say, the crime of murder. And it says, anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it was not done intentionally, but God allowed it to happen, then they are to flee to a place that I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken away from my altar and put to death. You see, when God gave the Ten Commandments, as I said, they were broad principle laws. But then there would be cases that would come along where you would have to apply that law. And clearly one of, the, of such type cases is one of murder. Sometimes things are not very clear-cut cases. If it is a clear-cut case, if someone kills someone and they planned it, then they should be put to death under the Mosaic Law. That one, of course, is fairly straightforward. But, of course, we would also see that more complicated situations were arise. So they're discussed also. And another example of that complication is found in our fourth case that we look at, which deals with the crime of assaulting parents and how that links into what has just gone before. In verses 15, it says, Anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. Now, these to our modern ears seem pretty severe punishments, don't they? But I suppose the principle it's showing is how seriously God takes family and fairness among people. You see, right from the beginning, God is saying, look, the family is going to be the basis of this new society. And if you don't have healthy, respectful family, then you're not going to have a healthy society. So God wants to preserve and protect the family in this new nation he has chosen to be his people. And one way, I suppose, of protecting the family is to have these very strict limits on what can be done, undermined by the threat of putting to death those who use violence to undermine the structure of the family and society in that way. Now, of course, that basic standard, we would say, remain today in the fact that we should still respect and honour our parents. And I believe that's a good thing. And if nothing else, it points out that sometimes it's not easy to apply these things, but it's very important that the family maintain and represent the high point of how God expects us to live together as a nation, as a people. Okay, the fifth case, verses 18 and 19, it deals with other cases of assault and where those grey lines and the waters are muddied and the difference between murder, premeditated murder, and other things that might happen. And it tells us this, 
If people quarrel and one person hits another with a stone or with their fist and the victim does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around without a staff. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any loss of time and must see that the victim is completely healed. So here we have a case where two men get into a fight and one of them strikes the others and clearly he's injured but he doesn't die. But the one who struck him, well he's not put to death but do you see he has to compensate the injured person for both his loss of time and provide for the costs of any medical care that he needed until he's completely healed. So this is the case where there's no intention to kill, it's just violent disorder if you like, and it doesn't result in a death, and of course that is saying that this is not to be defined as murder and has got to be treated differently. It's not a capital offence under the Mosaic Law, but still the person who caused the injury is still responsible for the consequences of their actions and they need to make full restitution. So what can we learn from these cases? Well, we can learn that the laws are there to protect people and, particularly this one, to preserve the sanctity of life, to ensure there is injustice at every level and to ensure people are compensated if they're physically assaulted and all of them will help underpin and promote a healthy society. And the, these cases also show that there are different levels of offences that need to be taken into account and that the punishment should fit the crime. And they also emphasise the importance of Overall, always remember to treat other people with dignity and respect, even when it's an indented servant or someone put into an arranged marriage, or even to injustice involved in arbitrating any form of physical altercation where violence has been used. These laws are all there to represent the principle of justice and are foundational to this day still to our sense of justice and how it applies in the world in which we live today. Now, it's worth noting that these laws were given specifically to the ancient Israelites as part of their legal system at that time. And in terms of the commandments, of course, they still apply. But in terms of the applications, there are certainly valuable insights and underlying principles of justice and human rights to be appreciated and applied. But we need to recognize that the application of those laws may vary in different cultural and legal contexts around the world today, just as they did with the nuances that he's unpacking in the different ways they are applied at that time. Of course, by today's standards, some of these laws sound really harsh. And that's because we've instituted laws that go beyond some of the things described here and added more tears and the more nuanced way of approaching these things in the complicated world in which we live today. But the underlying thing that you need to bear in mind that compared to the laws of this day and the codes around the Middle East at this time, those ideas and principles practiced outside the nation of Israel, these laws and principles are very tame and very fair by comparison. They're much more humane than the laws that were coming from the pagan societies around them at that time. Now it's going to get really interesting because look at verse 20, because it gives another, another situation it says this, anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result, but they are not to be punished if the slave recovers from it after a day or two since the slave is their property. 
Now, this one is going to be really tricky to modern ears, but it also gets interesting because look at what follows in the next couple of verses. It's putting it in a wider context and it says also if people are fighting and hit each other and a pregnant woman gets hit and she gives birth prematurely but has no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there's a serious injury, you are to take a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. Okay, let's think about this for a minute. Here we have two men who get into a fist fight and a pregnant woman who's there or around that scene also gets hurt in the fracas. This sounds a bit like my local pub on a Saturday night or an episode in, in a soap opera. The woman is, as described, is pretty much an innocent bystander, but because of the fight happening, she gets hurt. And as a result of it in this situation, she gives birth to their baby prematurely. But it says if neither her nor the baby are harmed, and it's a healthy birth, then what happens is the man who caused the situation, well, he still has to pay something, even in that circumstance. And what he has to pay is determined by an agreement between the husband of the woman and the civil authorities, the judges appointed over the people, and that man will be obliged to pay some kind of fine because his actions were deemed to have caused her to give birth prematurely. And that is applied even if no apparent harm followed. But then what if harm follows? What happens if there's some other harm and a result maybe the lady the woman herself is injured or the result of a premature birth the baby is born with a disability or the woman just simply falls and gets hurt then it says the offender the man or men involved in the fracas they should receive stripes to the same degree as the woman or the child was harmed so whatever their harm caused is to be their penalty applied to them this sounds a bit to me like the principle we have in the UK where you see lawyers advertising on TV saying where there's blame, there's a claim. This is what lies at the heart of the concept. This is the call for a strict, yes, but a fair justice. So if you cause the person to die, you die. If you cause the person to lose an eye, you lose an eye. If you cause the person to lose a tooth, you lose a tooth. And it goes through this list of equal crimes and punishment. If they're burned, you're burned. If that person, what's described as experiences stripes in any way, in other words, is injured in any way, then you will be given stripes also. It's a case of tit for tat, or maybe a better way of describing it as fair justice. Even to the point, if one of them dies, you too shall die. All right, we'll close off now in these last few verses, a few more examples. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it, the slave must go free to compensate for the loss of the eye. And an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must also let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. So the servant in this situation goes free. Now that within the, the laws of that time, is an incredibly harsh punishment for something that could have happened very easily based on the level of violence sometimes meted out against indentured servants and slaves. So obviously, within the 
God's revealing his plan for the nation of Israel he's establishing. This is a huge step change in discouraging physical abuse. If you're simply just to strike a servant or slave in this case, and if they suffer any type of harm, even something like simply losing a tooth, in response you must grant him or her their freedom. And one more, verse 28. This is an interesting one. If a bull gores a man or woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death and the meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. If, however, the bull has had the habit of going out and the owner has been warned, but it has not kept it penned up and it then goes out and kills a man or a woman, the bull is to be stoned to death and its owner is also to be put to death. Okay, this is a complicated one, but the principle still applies today. This is a case where a bull or an ox goes out and it goes a neighbour and that neighbour is killed. Then in that circumstance, if it's a one-off event, you don't have to pay a fine. Now I know that sounds contrary to everything that we've sort of heard so far. Everything seems to have been about pointing to the fact that you're responsible for these situations. But now all of a sudden, verse 28, it doesn't seem to be the case. But in order to understand verse 28, you need to hold it a lot and read it alongside the next verse, which says, But if the ox tended to be aggressive in the past, and that it had been known to the owner, and they'd not chosen to confine it, then if they kill a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned. Well, that's the equivalent of an animal being put down, being put to death, and the owner also shall be put to death. So in the first example, it's talking about an animal that you'd no way of knowing had the potential to kill someone. And it says in that case, you're not actually liable. But then this huge step change that if you know that the animal in the past has a violent history, has gored people, attacked people, and you have chosen not to confine it, then you are responsible because you didn't take reasonable steps to prevent that happening. You are responsible for that death, and then that becomes a capital offence. So the difference between these two situations is the little key phrase that lies between verse 28 and 29 where it says, and it had not been known to the owner that it had been violent. But then even if the capital offence is exacted, it tells us in the following verses, however, if payment is demanded, the owner may redeem his life by the payment of whatever is demanded. The law also applies if the bull gores a son or a daughter, or if the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull is to be stoned to death. So the violent animal, in all circumstances, if it's got a history, is to be put down. But what it's saying here is very simply that the penalty, the capital penalty, the potential death sentence on the owner of this violent animal can be redeemed or reduced to a fine and also and that fine is agreed between the offended person and the judge on the owner and even if it's a servant who is injured then the minimum standard is that it can be bailed for 30 pieces 30 shekels of silver interesting to note who got 30 shekels of silver does that ring a bell Judas, of course, for his betrayal of Jesus. So as an aside, what he got for betraying the Lord was the price of a slave. I find that interesting. Okay, what we've had here is thousands of year old archaic legal rules applied at that time 
and what they still mean for us today. So let me see if I can try and sum all this up. Because what I'm saying, and what I believe this is saying, is that ultimately it's just saying everyone, all people have rights. Rights regarding the cause of bodily injury or assault from the, the most everyday of occurrences right up to and including injury that may cause death and murder. And that in all situations, there must be reparations. A penalty must be paid. And ultimately, for some offences, the ultimate payment, capital punishment, is the ultimate payment for what was deemed what we would today call premeditated, pre-planned first-degree murder. But the real point of this passage is the big picture that it's trying to get across is that all punishments must be commensurate with the crime. This is the one thing I think we need to get out of it, is that any punishment should be commensurate with the crime. There's a limit set on them, and you can't go above that limit. Now, that can be, at this time, revealed as an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. You cause a loss, you experience a loss. And that is the strict justice that God reveals here. Now, you need to remember, like I said before, the society in to which this new code of principle was revealed because in the ancient world in many places there was no such even nod towards fair justice of any sort and even in the modern world today this principle is not always applied there is in fact injustice masquerading under the name of justice in some places for example if you steal instead of having to pay the money back you you steal you get your hand chopped off and that is a punishment that is clearly not commensurate with the crime. What the scripture teaches here is the principle being that the upper limit set must be the setting of a punishment being commensurate with the crime. The limit of justice can never be any more than an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but it can be set below that if you wish. There is something in the Bible called justice and it is fair justice. And let me make one more final observation, an important one for us to understand how this applies and what it means today. Today, a just society is governed by the rule of the law, not by the rule of the ruler. May I repeat that? Because still in totalitarian states around the world to this day, there are people who don't apply it in this way. So I'll repeat it. A just society is governed by the principles of the rule of law, not the ruler. So no one can be above the law. God created societies to be just societies. Well, they're supposed to be anyway. And we believe that within those societies ordained by God, we are governed by the rules and principles of law and not as in times past, just by the current ruler. So what we need to do is simply establish the law, apply it evenly, apply it fairly, don't exceed the limits of the law and try as best we can to live by it. Okay, my friends, that's it for today. I do hope you find that interesting and helpful. 
challenging for us, I'm sure, on many levels, whether you're coming from one political perspective or from the other, it really challenges us on both levels. I hope prayerfully it enables you to maybe navigate your way through some of the difficult issues that we see played out around us all the time in the world in which we live. So with that said, I'll say that's it for today and thank you for joining me. My name is Jeremy McCandless and the Bible Project Daily Podcast is hosted on buzzsprout.com. The Bibleproject.buzzsprout.com. That's the place where it's hosted. Of course, most of it you will be receiving it from podcast platforms like Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts. There are over 30 of them now I'm aware of people using. And that's great, that's fine. And that's the places where you subscribe and make sure you don't miss another episode. But if you're wanting to access active links to things like my episode notes, also the full transcript of each of these messages that I give, as well as other places where I place other types of teaching, then you can do that and see those, clicking those links through at the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com. You'll even find a place a link through to a place called Patreon where you can decide you want to be one of my patrons and help support this ministry from anything from a couple of pounds a month. It is that group of people who enable these podcasts to be made freely available to everyone at all those places on the internet they're on. So thank you to them and thank you particularly to you for choosing to join with me today. And I do trust I'll see you back here again tomorrow. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me. It's whatever day works for you as we work together through the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.